Hello everyone, we'll be getting into the episode very shortly, but before we begin, we have an advertisement. We have been sponsored this week by Encounter Party. Encounter Party is an audio adventure podcast featuring six professional voice actors battling through an epic Dungeons and Dragons campaign edited down to focus purely on the story. Every episode has been fine-tuned by removing all fluff and filler, leaving nothing but pure adventure you can enjoy in under an hour. Uh, Season 1 spent over seven weeks on Apple's new and noteworthy charts, and Season 2 has charted in 49 countries uh, for comedy fiction. And as well as that, the campaign is written by a novelist and playwright. That's pretty cool. If you are a fan of actual play podcasts with a strong cast and a good sense of fun and humor, uh, this feels very much like the kind of show that you may enjoy. I think fans of the game of Rastlon will will thoroughly uh, enjoy this particular show. And I'm always on the lookout. I'm really glad they're sponsoring us because I'm always on the lookout for more actual play podcasts to listen to. Very excited to kind of sink my teeth or wrap my ears around this particular show. That's pretty cool. So there are two full seasons available, and a third is releasing this fall. So now is the best time to join the party. If you are a fan of fantasy epics and top-notch voice acting, then check out Encounter Party wherever you listen to podcasts. And for more party favors, head over to EncounterParty.com. So thank you very much to Encounter Party for sponsoring the show. We're going to jump into this episode. But if you are enjoying the game of Rassilon, do feel free to tweet at us. We are at Pod on Twitter. We're also at Pod on Instagram and Facebook. And please don't forget to leave a positive review for the show. Remember, small podcasts like ours live and die by word of mouth. So we really appreciate it when people come together uh, and, and share the love for this show. Anyway, enough of my rambling. Let's join the Doctor in Perfection. Previously on The Game of Rassilon. The TARDIS doors burst open as Carrie enters. Travis slumped unconscious over her shoulders. I'll run some scans. I, there's something going on with him, but I don't, I don't know what it is. You look over at Travis uh, with the Sonic, and then you look at the Sonic, and then you look up, and you are not in the TARDIS anymore. Ahead of the Doctor is a path. It splinters off in many directions. Picture rows and columns of orange stone, of passages and pathways, all ahead of the Doctor. Picture a labyrinth. Oh, if David Bowie's not in there, I'm going to be right hacked off. You stand at the mouth of the labyrinth, large orange walls wrapped waist-high in vines with shimmering silver leaves stretch up towards the sky, with yellow sand, coarse and ubiquitous, colouring everything it touches. You can feel the heat from the sky above beating down on you, but you also feel something else. Not a presence, but an absence. You feel moored, anchored to the moment. You have lost your sense of time, not of its passing, but of its power and potential. And consequently, while you are here, you will be unable to use the traits, feel the turn of the universe, and vortex. Okay. Stretching out ahead of you is a passage, a path spreading out in many different directions. But then suddenly, like a cut in a film, a woman appears in front of you. Her face is gently weathered, perhaps not so much by time, but by experience. But it's her robes that pull focus. Red robes with accents of silver and gold. The colours, patterns and shapes of the Sisterhood of Khan. Oh, I thought maybe we were here for the Grand Relics. Also, we are here for the Grand Relics. 
It is at this point that we may want to remind listeners of who the Sisterhood of Khan are. The Doctor first encountered the Sisterhood when the Time Lord sent him to Khan during his fourth incarnation to stop the return of Morbius. Later, the Sisterhood were instrumental in the regeneration of the Eighth Doctor into the War Doctor. More recently, the Twelfth Doctor encountered the Sisterhood when he was trying to avoid detection from Davros, then later when he went on his rampage on Gallifrey while trying to save Clara Oswald. Suffice to say, there is a lot of history between the Doctor and the Sisterhood, and some of it is coming home to roost. Right, yeah, it has been a minute, hasn't it? It's It's been a while, yes. So what can, I do? Hello. what can we do for you? Well, I guess it's just me. I guess it's just me here and not my friends, but, you know. It's just, it's fine. Your friends are safe and they will await you on the other side, but we have a task for you, Doctor. It is now time. The time has come. The time of no time at all, in fact. It is rapidly approaching us, and it is time now, Doctor, that you remember. Right, so you know, if you have a task for someone, you can actually just, like, give them a ring, or write a letter, or a note. You don't need to yank me from my ship in the middle of whatever was happening and just drop me off in the front of a maze. So... Just going to put that out there as like a future option. If you're thinking about asking me for help, maybe you could just, I don't know, ask me for help. You're saying in future we should just shoot you a DM, maybe hit you up on WhatsApp, something like that? You think that's... I mean, I just think, you know, I have a phone on my TARDIS and you know that and you can just like, put it in, install it. So, just saying. Have you There's... ever seen a cell phone on Khan, Doctor? <laughs> <laughs> so, sorry. <laughs> Who is that? Aha! <laughs> is that it? Is that, oh, I thought it was Anthony Ainley. <laughs> it's I, Sister Cushing. Uh. <laughs> yeah, she pulls down her hood to reveal it's it's, just, it's not even like Doctor Who, it's just Peter Cushing. Oh. Um, no, she says, there is an order to which these things must occur, Doctor. And if you could remember, you would know that, which is why we are here. And now, the time has come for you to begin... To remember. Do you get and like a nickel every time someone says time? Is that how? I, I, does someone give you a bet? Like, did you walk out and go, "I'm gonna say how many times I can say time"? The doctor. I'm just gonna try that out. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> she says yes, and then she claps. <laughs> okay. uh, and uh, as she claps, you are uh, you. You find the red and yellow sand kind of uh, washes up against you, and you are kind of in the middle of this tornado, this blizzard of sand. And when it subsides and, and kind of settles around you, um, you are no longer standing in this sprawling maze. You are in a hallway with a single door ahead of you. Uh, the door is a kind of burnt black wood. It's kind of pitted and weathered as if the door has been pulled out of wreckage and reclaimed and repurposed. Oh, this maze just got a lot easier. I just walk straight and open this door. That's good. So I, I go right. to the door and I try to see if I can open it. Uh, it the handle turns and it, it, it opens. It, I tell you what, it takes an open real nice like. Yeah, I'm a fan of doors to do that. All right. So I like kind of like open it and like creak my head inside of it. A moderately sized rock. No, uh, the you, uh, you you poke your. Head. I think that's the first one this season. That can't be true. <laughs> I feel like it must be. Um, someone will tweet at me. I'm sure. Uh, you and you see a you see a room, a kind of a a circular room. Uh, the the ground is covered in kind of a kind of a, a, a dirt like sand. It may as well just be brown sand. Um, but there are shelves and. Tables and dresses and uh, and fixtures and fittings, all of which are covered in cups, mugs, goblets, grails, uh, all all manner of different drinking receptacles uh, fill this room. There is not a single surface that does not have some kind of goblet or or uh, chalice or variation thereof resting upon it. All different designs and complexities. Um, oddly missing, there's no grey withered old nightman in here. Um, but there are, there's there's just a uh, a metric ton of, maybe even more than a ton, I haven't weighed them, of goblets and, and chalices and drinking receptacles. Ugh, and I look around for like a source of water and I'm supposed to fill one of the goblets with. Uh, there is, in the, in the middle of the room, standing on a plinth on its own, is a metal... Uh, c gently curved 
uh, pitcher of water, kind of a, a copper metal that seems kind of reminiscent of um, of a, a, a previous TARDIS design. Okay. Uh, I look around at the different goblets and I want to make like some sort of like investigation check, I guess, like or a perception type thing where I'm just kind of like seeing if any of them seem notable to me or seem like if there's like some that feel like they're repeated so they wouldn't be maybe the like if there's, if there's some that look exactly like other ones they're probably not the ones that are the sure um let's let's make that awareness and uh awareness and knowledge okay okay so that was a nine to start with plus 17 total. That's a that's a good roll. I like that roll. As your eye is scanning the, the various drinking receptacles and all the surface, there's one that catches your eye, um, not because it's particularly unique or it is particularly special in any way, but because you recognize it. You look at this, this, this goblet and you have held this goblet before. This is the goblet that contains the elixir that Ohila gave you to regenerate into the War Doctor. So many lifetimes ago now. Okay. Um, I I do like a cat thing. I just flick that one over. You just knock it, knock it over? Yeah. All right, you knock it over. It's now sideways. Yeah. It knocks over a couple of other goblets on the way because of how physics works. Mm-hmm. Um, and now it's, now it's sideways. <laughs> yeah. Um, is there any other notable goblet in the room besides that one? Or are they all just kind of like... It's, I would say that this, the, the rest of them are all, there's nothing particularly that stands out that strikes you as, as interesting and unique, unique about the other, um, drinking receptacles in this room. All right. I, I look at that cup and I, I kind of pick it up and look at it and I just chuck it even further away from me. And then I ignore all the other cups and goblets and I just walk right over to like the, the pitcher and I just kind of like. So is it just a pitcher or is it like water pouring out of something or is it like the pitcher is meant to be poured into something? I would, yeah, it's a pitcher you'd have to tip and, and, and pour into something. All right. So I just like pick it up and I like lean my head back and I just, is that, I don't think that I would drink. I, I think that you want me to drink out of the War Doctor cup, but I just feel like in character, I never would do that again. So I just take the pitcher and I just like, like a child at a soda fountain, I just tilt it back and I just take a big old drink of the water directly into my mouth. I I absolutely love that. Uh, as you uh, as as are you are you, are you just you just kind of upended this thing on yourself like a thing of Gatorade or yeah. All right, so you <laughs> so you're standing there holding this pitcher uh, drenched in water, um, and you you look over to where the uh, the 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 war doctor chalice we'll call it um, is on the floor, kind of maybe a little bent and 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 warped from where it hit the ground, and then there is. Uh, a, a sudden flash of light that seems to start from the goblet and flash outwards. And then suddenly you're not where you were. You are not in the room, oh, God. Uh, the, the the chamber of the goblets of the fire of eternal flame. Goblet you are, it's fine. It's fine. Uh, yeah. You are back on Khan. You are in the cave where you first held that chalice, where, where you drank from it and you turned into the war doctor. And that's when you see him. Uh, the the one you wouldn't talk about until you knew better, Captain Grumpy himself. But there's a mop of messy black hair sitting atop that fresh face. This is the freshest this face ever was. You have never seen the War Doctor look so young. And you remember this moment, the the, the burning crucible of regeneration. Um, What you don't remember is sitting on a rock on that cave in Khan, brow furrowed, writing in your diary. That is until you're seeing it now. And as you watch the War Doctor scribble, each word reforms itself in your mind's eye as if you were writing them yourself. The Sisterhood of Khan. Amazing people. Strong, resolved, brilliant. But there's such anger there, a righteous fury aimed at the Time Lords. And they're right to feel it. Tonight, I learned more than just how to be a warrior. I learned a truth about our shared history. The sisters left our shared home over a decision Rassilon himself made. Something to do with the Matrix. Something that the sisterhood knew couldn't be fixed. They didn't want the Matrix-guided path. They wanted the freedom of choice. 
But there's something else to it. Something caked in blood. The sisterhood abandoned Gallifrey, left in exodus to Khan over Rassilon's choice. Over his, his hubris. Trust a smart woman to know when to step away from an egomaniac. But I'm writing this now to myself. And he looks over now in your direction. A coincidence, surely he couldn't possibly be looking at you. I'm writing this now to myself in the hopes that should this terrible war end, and should I survive it, things be set right. This must be remembered. The schism in our people must be healed. And the light drops and fades back in again, and you find yourself back in that chamber of chalices. Different this time, however, is the presence of a new door in the center wall uh, facing directly towards you, and it's battered and cracked and painted a reddish color. And where the door number should be, where you would normally find a number on a front door of a house or a flat, there is only a shattered clock. Um, I look at the clock to see what time it says right now. It seems like it might be, if it were working properly, like it might be pointing to midnight. Okay. I move the clock to be pointing at right in between uh, eight and nine. Okay. You hear a click from the handle. And then I try to open the door. The door uh, slides open... Um, I say slides open like it's a screen door. I don't know why it says slides open. The door swings open forwards into this new room. And the this room uh, is a simple sandstone. The floors, the walls, everything about it is, is just kind of the simple sandstone. And in the center of the room, illuminated by a single beam of light, is a sundial. And on the floor of this room uh, is a circle with a triangle inside. Uh, that seems to be pointing at an angle away from the sundial. Okay. Um, I look up towards the ceiling to see if there's any sort of apparatus by which I can like redirect the sun's beam to affect the sundial. Uh, there's nothing fitted into the walls or the ceiling that would uh, appear to deflect or reflect the flight of the, uh, uh, the, the beam of light. Um, okay, I go back and I make a shadow puppet of a dog in the beam of light for right. a moment. And then I, uh, I I try with my hands to see if I can make the same shape that is on the circle on the ground. Um, with your hands, you can kind of pull off a similar shape, but it's it's not the right size and it's not quite the right angles. I will, I will say this, though. As you approach the beam of light to make your, your fun... Uh, shadow puppets, uh, you do notice that the sides of the, the sundial uh, are uh, a reflective metal. You can see your own reflection in them. Okay. I, uh, I give myself a smile and nod <laughs> myself, and then I, I try to see if I can move them to redirect them to change like the way they're reflecting. Yeah, the, so the, the wheel of the sundial appears to uh, pivot with kind of a nice smooth you know how when you've, you've got a like a sound system you've got that that the the, the dial the knob and you got to turn it, it's got a very very nice smooth satisfying and then you reach the end and it clicks it's like oh yeah that's what this uh so this is this it's got this real nice motion it's like a it's like a high-end uh cheese wheel uh, are you clicks? are you moving in any particular direction? What is the well? What besides the sundial in the circle? What is the is there are there doors on any of the walls? Are there any sort of like other things? There are no. There, there's nothing else in the room except for the marking on the floor. Uh, but as the light is hitting the the sundial sundial as you turn it, it is moving the beam of light to different spots on the on the floor. Okay, so I, I tried turning the, the mirrors again to see what I can get out of that. Okay, um, as you, are you just kind of like, you know, taking a full 360 or? I'm just trying to like continue turning it to see if I can point the beam elsewhere. Like if I can get the point at the circle or somewhere else. Yeah, so as you're turning the dial and the the light hits the, the, the shape on the floor, a figure appears in the light kind of springing out from the ground. It is the 12th Doctor. A beam of light slashes across the room like a spotlight and suddenly you are inside the sprawling capital dome on Gallifrey. Golden light beams in from outside glinting off of silver leaf trees and red sand dunes in the deep distance 
and you are yourself, outside of yourself, writing in a diary that you can't remember, as if writing for the first time. Gallifrey. I hate it here. It feels so static, like we're all just standing in time's shadow. I'm only here for Clara now, but the sisters... Ah, the sisters. Ohila's right, of course. They should never have left. All living did was lock the sisterhood and the Time Lords into a cycle of never learning, never growing, just stagnating across the millennia. To think all it took to shatter one of the formative civilizations of the universe was a stupid computer game. A matrix filled with trapped souls plotting the future of the living. The sisterhood believed that we're building a repository of knowledge, but that old Frasalon turned it into an electronic graveyard. Nothing more than ghosts in the machine, singing his praises. The vanity of such a thing. But after everything, after four billion years to ponder death, I can understand doing whatever it takes to keep ghosts alive. And the light begins to fade, but the memory remains. And you find yourself back in that room with the sundial, and there is a an imp- almost imperceptible difference in the room, and it is in the wall ahead of you. Rather than maybe expecting another door, as, as, as this is the second room you've encountered, there is instead... There's a, there's a window, and you have to climb in, th- in the through the window. That's the, that's the joke. And then Van Stat... No, let's start again. Uh, <laughs> it's just a faint outline of what might be a door. Like, if you, if you weren't looking for it, you would probably gloss over it. But as you see it, you see um, kind of a, a carving or cutting in the wall where a, a door or passage might be. Okay, I go over to it, and I try to see if it actually is a door or if it's more of a, like, like it's like a outline. Uh, it definitely looks like this stone shifts or moves in some way. Okay, I'm going to kind of like rub my fingers along the cracks and the bricks and see if I feel anything that's like going to push in to like open it. Uh, yeah, you you definitely feel it kind of, as, as you put your, your, your right hand against it in particular, you feel it begin to, to give, like it's on a hinge, like a hidden, unseen hinge as the door slowly swings inward like the previous doors. Okay. Um, I look around the room before I leave it to see if there's anything I'm forgetting or like I'm doing like maybe like another like awareness presence check or whatever or whatever you have me do I don't remember what you had me roll last time was it awareness and knowledge uh, we yeah we did awareness and knowledge for the chalices yeah uh, there isn't really anything I'm, I'm, I'm not gonna have you do a roll because there isn't really anything else in the the uh, the sundial room that is not fixed down by which I mean the sundial okay uh, I guess I head to the door then Sure. Um, you step forth, and it's again. It's that. It's kind of that sandstone of the previous room, but polished, smooth, and slick. And there is. There's. You can hear the sound of running water. And as you look to the walls, you see this kind of gentle, uh, kind of waterfall effect, like this kind of water feature. And it pools in in small puddles around the edges of the room. And and you see also there is a, there's a, a trickling of water in the center of the room, trickling down to a kind of a central stage area on which there are two podium-style lecterns standing at either side. One is is illuminated, and the other, you see there is a figure standing there, but they are shrouded in, in darkness, and you can't make out currently who they are. Uh, I know how this works. Okay, so uh, to the Shadow Guy, if I ask the light-covered one what the truth is, will it tell me the truth, or will it not tell me the truth? The figure shrugs and goes, ah. Oh, I thought that would work. All right. Um, okay. Um, who are you? The figure just gestures over towards the other illuminated podium. No, that's not you. That, that's a podium. You're you. I was asking who you were. Uh, it just, its, its hand remains outstretched towards the other podium. Okay. I see if I can move him to the, po- to the light. Um... I'm gonna. I, what I'm gonna have you do? I would like you very much to do an awareness and. Uh, ooh, let's call this awareness and knowledge. Okay. Okay. 
So that is going to be uh, another 17. 17 is very good. You get close to to try to move this this figure in shadow, and you see a, you see their silhouette. They're kind of short with a, a round haircut, and this is definitely a, a, a silhouette that you have seen before. And you realize who it is just as as the light comes up. It's Adric. We mentioned this companion back at the start of this season when the Doctor faced his memory in the nightmare library of Roman's broken TARDIS. But thanks to the wonderfully flexible medium of podcasts, here's a quick explainer for those who don't know. Once upon a time, the Doctor saved a young math whiz from a parallel universe. They traveled together with friends, had many adventures, and then the boy detonated himself to destroy the Cybermen, killing Earth's dinosaur population in the process. Silent end credits, it's a whole thing. But now, in the imagined flesh, is that young boy again, eyes burning with the rage of a scorned teen. And while those at home may not know his name, the Doctor will never forget it. Adric. Adric looks at you and he says, Please, Doctor, take your place. Okay, I walk over to the light podium and kind of stand in the same position he's standing in. Okay. Uh, you are both lit in a uh, in in this in the same kind of spotlight, and you can feel a kind of coolness from behind you, as if the space that was behind you is no longer there. And it feels like the the atmosphere now has taken on the the the, the feel of of an auditorium. You can't see them. You can't perceive them with your eyes or your senses, particularly not your Time Lord senses, because you ain't got none right now. Um, but you you are aware in the way that anyone who has ever been on a stage is aware, even when the lighting is 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 playing the, that trick against you, that there is an audience there listening. And uh, Adric looks over to you, and Adric says, this is a very simple question, and this is a very easy debate. Why fight against the inevitability of entropy? You hear a <coughs> coming from where people may be sitting. Uh, because it's the BBC, I can't make a lewd gesture at them. Um, you can, but only on Torchwood. After the watershed. Yeah. Um, I think about it, and I say, because I'm the doctor. And Adric simply smiles and says, and that alone gives you the right? What? What? gives you the right to, to hold back the, the decay, the collapse of all things? What gives you the right to decide who lives and who dies? Did you, have you not yourself said in the past, everything has its time and everything dies? Who are you to stop that, to prevent that? Just a lady with a box. I'm not preventing or stopping anything. I'm just helping people when they need it. But why? To what end? How, how does it benefit you? How does it, how does it benefit your existence to try to push back against something so thoroughly and utterly inevitable? Well, that's not the same question now, is it? You asked me why I do it. You didn't say how it helped. Now you're saying, why does it help me? It's not the same thing. I just do it. People need help. I'm here. That's what I do. Well, then it's allow me, me a to... purpose. Well, then allow me to rephrase the question. If... If... Death and decay and entropy are inevitable. Why fight it? Because people don't need to suffer needlessly. Just because something might be inevitable doesn't mean that it has to be painful and hurt and dark on the way there. If, if we have the ability to create light, then we should darn well do it while we have the chance to do it. And you would say that the fact that you can means that you should? Yeah. Because who else is going to do it? There is a moment of silence, and then there is a, a ripple of applause from the audience you cannot see. And then the room begins to change. This, the sound of this applause kind of rises and, 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 and kind of floods the, the, the echo of the room. It echoes throughout the room. And then the light rises with it and settles into the images of the past, flickering across the walls like a planetarium formula and diagrams and a multi-dimensional map of space and time flip past like a thousand thousand fireflies and then you see her it's you but 
not you, a different you, a past you, with long black hair parted down the middle, tied into a tight, smart schoolmarm bun at the back of the neck, wearing a gorgeous black shirt with a simple ruffle on the front and a brooch at the neck and red braces holding up a gray checkered skirt. But she's also the saddest you have ever seen. And indeed the saddest you've ever been. And as you see her, you remember that feeling, the way she feels now, this kind of deep sorrow. And she's kneeling in a postmodern Pieta, cradling the body of yet another dead companion, short and cute in that way men only very occasionally pull off. And you realize that you can't remember his name, but you remember the words of your past self. Who else is gonna do it? I know it's selfish to want. All of this power over space and time, and it all comes back to the same selfish question. Do I have the right to change my past? Change a day. Fix a mistake. Save a life. No, still no. I left Gallifrey for a reason. Things have to matter. Lives have to be lived, not just experienced at a cold remove. But then I'm left with an even more selfish question. The most selfish of all. How many more times am I going to do this? How much more can I take? Then a ripple in space and time, part of a mystery you've just now begun to solve in your mind. The fireflies of the stars and constellations shift and move and burn in an agony that bends the whole of the universe. And your companion's body is gone and your memory of him is gone, and he never even lived. But the diary remains. And now this is yours again, too. Can I pick up the diary? Yeah. All right, I pick up the <laughs> your diary, and I, <gasps> I do the doctor thing, and I flip to the last page to see what the last page of that particular era of my diary says. Uh, I think it just says, spoilers, XOXO, the doctor. (laughs) (laughs) All right, and I flipped to the page before that one. (laughs) What did I just say? XOXO, the doctor. All right, one more page. Quit it. (laughs) (laughs) It just says, quit it. (laughs) With like five eyes. (laughs) After I've had looked at the last few pages, I I finally just randomly like flipped to a random page in the middle of the book. Come on, doctor. You and I both know you have to keep going. I make like a like a frustrated face, very much like in line with like a Jody face scrunch. I was just thinking like a Jody yeah. scrunch, yeah. <laughs> and then I just like put it down, and I kind of like grumpily look around the room for another door. Yeah, uh, you're you're back in the uh, in the, the the sandstone room with the podiums. There's no aud- audience in front of you. Um, in front of you is a door. Uh, made of a a, a rough bark-like wood with a a glowing blue neon sign on the front that just says, enter. Uh, Just as a a character moment, because I'm frustrated that I forgot that guy's name, and so I'm muttering to myself, Susan, Ian, Barbara, Vicky, Stephen, Sarah Kingdom. And like, uh, oh, and uh, what's the name of that like caveman? Okay, anyway, but like, I think yeah. I think maybe maybe I'll, maybe I'll just end it with Vicky, like a Susan. Ian. Yeah, like I'm, that's that's very curse yeah. of Fenric. I love that. Yeah, uh, cool. Okay, so then, what, sorry, describe the door to me again. It, the door is made of a rough bark-like wood with a blue neon sign on the front that just says "Enter." All right, I. I don't really like being told what to do, but I guess I'll enter. So I'll go ahead and give that to Okay. You walk into the room and the walls are kind of a rough, kind of gravelly stone. Kind of like you're in a quarry, but a quarry that kind of bends up and over the top of itself. A little inception-y. And the ground is is soil. It's dirt. It is, uh, if it weren't for the fact that you were covered, uh, kind of enclosed in stone, 
Um, you could just as well be outside, but this is a space that is maybe uh, 30 or 40 foot uh, in diameter. And in the middle of the room, there is a sword kind of very carefully propped uh, on a kind of a, a, a kind of a, I want to say holster, but I'm not thinking a holster, but it's like, it's, it's kind of resting a in, in a pommel. Yeah. Maybe that makes yeah. some sense. Yeah. The I'm pommel is like, the handle. Yeah, I'm thinking like a kind of like a weapons rack that is designed just to hold this one specific thing. Okay. Uh, this is, I'm having trouble articulating that point, but maybe I can fix that in post as well. But you can see uh, the 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 cross guard for, of this sword uh, kind of resembles uh, roots or vines. Okay. As I walk up to it, I'm going uh, Ben, Polly, Jamie, Zoe, Liz. As you approach the uh, the the center of the room, Joe, Sarah, there is a a mighty roar. Yates, you say Yates, and then you see in front of you, standing uh, at least eight foot tall, a minotaur. Oh, 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 oh! Come on, no, no, no! I'm I'm done with it. Sisters, Khan, I know, I'm not going to fight a minotaur in a, a maze. It's just, I don't know what this voice I'm doing is at this point. But, all right, no, no, not doing it. No, come on. All right. The uh, doctor the is frustrated at, like, the very predictability. And I'm not saying it's you as as, as, <laughs> as GMs. Like, I love it out of character, but in character, the doctor is like, oh, come on. Yeah, that's fine. No, no, you don't, you're not angry at the GM. The doctor's angry at the GM. That's fine. The doctor's usually um, angry at the uh, universe, so this all checks out. Yeah, that's why it just feels <laughs> in character to be like, no. The Minotaur's going to actually take a swipe at you with its massive, massive claws. I need you uh, to roll, oh, actually, what do you want to do? Do you want to try to evade? I yeah, wanna... I think I don't want to get hit by the Minotaur. You I, wanna... like, oh, I, I thought, maybe, I, yeah, I don't want to railroad you. I wanted to give you the opportunity to maybe lean into it or something. Nah. But yeah, uh, go ahead and uh, roll uh, coordination and athletics. Okay. Uh... 11. 11 total? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I have, I have a seven in those, and then I roll a three and a one. I'm I'm genuinely shocked. So you rolled an eleven. Uh, he, she, or they rolled thirteen. So that is going to be a uh, that's a, a yes, but for them. So they actually do half damage. Okay. Um. So you ta- you're going to take one hit to your coordination. Oh, that's now. Nah- oh, come on! I didn't do anything to you. I was trying to be peaceful. It snarls and begins uh, stomping towards you again. All right, I guess I'm gonna run. Okay, uh, what, are you just gonna run away from it? Yeah, it's a minotaur trying a minotaur trying to hit me. I'm gonna run from it. I know that sounds crazy, but I, I'm gonna go for I'm it. I'm genuinely shocked. All right, uh, yeah, give me. Oh, I forget what running is. Uh, it's coordination and something. It's coordination and athletics. Let's call it. Oh, great. <laughs> Alright, that's a little better. It's a 13. Okay, so the Minotaur's actually on... It's 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 not gaining on you, but it is not losing any footing. So it's kind of uh, giving chase at almost a, a, exactly a doctor's pace. Okay, I'm looking around the room for, like, a rope or anything I can tie it up with or something I can, like, catch it in instead of, like, trying to hit it with a sword. Uh, right now, the only thing in the room right now is the sword on the, the stand. Okay, I'm gonna run back to the stand and pull the sword out. Okay, as you do that, you, you notice that not only is the hilt kind of wrapped in kind of uh, vines, but they are also kind of going down along the blade and growing out of the base of the... We just said what it was called, the, the part you hold it with. You're the pommel or the hilt. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, growing out of the absolute base of the of the the, 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 the pommel, or the hilt, the, that, the, bit, the bit what you hold, the handle, the handle, the sword... The doorknob, um, the doorknob it, of the sword. Yeah, growing out of the, out, out of the, out of the absolute bottom of this thing is uh, a single olive. All right, uh, I'm going to pull the olive off and throw it in the mouth of the Minotaur. <laughs> oh, dang. All right. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, that's... That's amazing. That's good. Um, all right, let's call... That's definitely going to be coordination. Uh, sorry, yeah, coordination and... I'm going to say marks. No, I'm going to say I'm spending a story point to do it. <laughs> You're just doing yeah. it? Uh, I, I'll, I'll give it to you for two. Okay. All right, yeah, you you just pluck this olive off and throw it into the Minotaur's mouth. The Minotaur catches, not intentionally, but the, the, the olive lands uh, in, this, uh, in this Minotaur's mouth and it kind of stops in shock for a moment. 
um, and begins to chew the olive. And then there's a moment of it kind of looks at you as if, as if to say, hmm, that's quite nice. It doesn't say it with its minotaur mouth, um, but it's like, oh, it's nice. And then very suddenly, uh, the soil beneath you begins to crack and part, uh, bursting forth with a brilliant light. And then you are inside the TARDIS, which can't be possible. For a start, it's not your TARDIS, not really. It is a TARDIS. It's, it is your TARDIS from the past, but with a, a kind of a, a vintage motif accented with, with neon lights. And sitting on the console, holding the by now familiar worn leather diary, is another past you. A man with carefully coiffed, dirty blonde hair on top of his head and beautifully patterned suspenders hanging down loose at the waist. And he just looks tired and there's a scorch mark on a nearby jacket that suggests he's just recently been in a scuffle. He removes a pair of vintage sunglasses and begins to write. Words. Never underestimate the power of a good sit-down chit-chat. People should do that more often. But that's the trouble, isn't it? The minute you extend an olive branch to your enemy, the moment you start to talk, that's when you find you're not all that different. Which rather spoils the killing of bloodshed and dropping bombs on one another. I wonder, though. Did they talk the sisterhood and the... Time Lords, I expect their great mother tried, but trying to talk to Rassilon is like trying to open an oyster by reasoning with it. I should write that down. Which actually is a lot easier than you think. Oysters aren't as stubborn as Rassilon for a start, and they have a much better idea of what's worth holding on to. Which is part of the problem, really. Because Rassilon has been holding on to the dead, the Time Lords of days gone by, suspending them inside the Matrix for millions and millions of years. That's no way to treat your ancestors. You can only mistreat family for so long before they start pushing back. And now what's inside the Matrix is getting stronger. And if it gets out, I... I don't know if I'll be able to stop it. And then you watch this other doctor close the diary and set it down on the console and begin to operate controls and the time rotor begins to go up and down. The rotor itself is this kind of gorgeous mix of neon lights, these light blues and pinks. It's like something out of a neo-futuristic 80s movie about your life that doesn't quite get all of the details right. Do I remember this incarnation of myself or is this a version of myself yes. that I don't remember? Okay. This is this is yeah, this is a this is a a doctor that you have been. So I remember this TARDIS. I just maybe kind of find it like gaudy yes. myself. Okay. Yes, it's maybe not quite for you, but it was very much for this doctor. Okay. And then the light begins to flood from the middle of the time rotor out until you find yourself back in, on, standing on the soil with the sword in hand. The Minotaur is gone, but there is a, a door in front of you. It is a uh, blue battered door. Is it a TARDIS door? It's certainly TARDIS blue. I go to the door and I pull to enter. Okay. You enter and there is, it's a simple viewing gallery. There's kind of a, a wooden laminate floor, plain white walls, and hanging on the wall is a painting. It is, it's Time Lord art that shifts in perspective based on where you are standing. There's also this kind of overlapping red-blue 3D effect. It appears to be over, overlaying in blue the Gallifrey of the past over the top of the Gallifrey of the present. And leaning up against the wall, just to the left of this painting, is a gnarled wooden cane. Oh no. I, I look around, because I, I know whose cane that is, and I, I look to see if he's in the room. Uh, there's no one else uh, in the room. It's just you, the painting, and the cane, uh, and the door you came through. Okay. Uh, I, I pick the cane up, and I examine it, to see if it feels like... Because I can't really remember where I left it. Um, I don't really remember losing it. I, I, I remember having it. I remember needing it for quite some time. And then, you know, because I don't really remember my own regeneration, I, I don't really remember losing it. I don't know like where I left it behind. So now yeah. I, I pick it up and I kind of examine it. And what I'm looking at is to see if I can tell... 
if it feels as new as when I left it, like as when I had it, or if it's like, I'm trying to kind of gauge if it feels like it's been, if it's aged at all, like if it's, if the wood has rotted at all, or like even like on a minor level, I know you said that I can't use my feel the turn of the universe and vortex. So Mm. I guess this is just more of like a, like my awareness of, I'm trying to think if any of my things would really. I mean, you still have you still have your 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 Time Lord experience. Yeah, um, I, but this is, this is more like a personal experience thing. Like this is a, this yeah. is an object of mine that was a, a a very important part of my life for a while, and yeah. Uh, so I feel like I have a familiarity with it, and I feel like yeah. I feel like I I mean like Ben, correct me if I'm wrong, but like as someone who uses a cane, I assume that. If like one day you picked it up and it was somehow a year older than the last time you used it, I feel like you might notice some differences. Like, yeah. like, like you might feel like the hand grooves wouldn't be quite the same, or like you know what I mean. Like, and so like that's I'm looking for those kind of details. Like I'm trying to see yeah. if like if this is exactly how it was the last time I remember it, or if it's like aged significantly, or. Yeah, or if it's younger, if it's like a preview, if it's if it's earlier in the line, like if it's like before I stopped using it. Uh, I would say the the wood itself is not uh, not really rotted in any way. I would say that uh, the the cane itself is made from uh, a wood that is not of uh, uh, earth origin, so it's got a different kind of uh, heft to it. It doesn't <laughs> feel like it, you know it's, it's it's less prone to just rotting in that way that wood inevitably. Yeah. I guess I'm looking does. more for like wear and tear of like user yeah, yeah. wear and tear. Absolutely. Um so there's definitely some this is a cane that has been used. It is it has been very well used, very well loved. There is some uh, kind of scuffing uh, and wear and tear mostly on the handle where it's been uh, where it has been held. There is a lot of kind of scratching and scuffing at the very very base of the cane where it has come into contact with the ground over and over and over again. Uh, and there's weathering up the side where maybe it's maybe in a previous adventure, you used it to prop something or pry something open, or uh, maybe in a moment of desperation, you've, you've used it as, as a, as a, as a defensive weapon, like a baseball bat, maybe. Okay. Um, this is, this is a cane that has, uh, a storied history. And I would say that, your hands now are a different shape and size than I they would have been when you were. I was getting ready to say that. Like, yeah. it wouldn't feel familiar to me because I'm holding up a different hand. Yeah. Yeah, I think that it would feel different putting your hand around it because the shape of your hands is different now than it was when you were in your previous incarnation when you were using this cane. But I think that the feel of the wood beneath your fingers um, against your skin that it, that brings back, a, I would say, a very potent sense memory of all of the time that you spent with this cane. Okay, I I kind of stand there for a moment with my hand on it, and I kind of stand with it the way that I would have before, and I I kind of have a wistful moment of memory of the time that I spent as that version of myself because I'm I'm constantly moving forward in my life and I'm constantly, you know, being a new version of myself and this I don't think I often get to encounter versions of my past in a relaxing, peaceful way like this. So I think it's kind of just like a soothing moment that I'm like kind of into for a second. And then I immediately pick the cane up and that moment is gone. And then, like you said, in that baseball bat style, I take a big old swing with it and I just shove it right into the glass pane of the Gallifreyan art. That is absolutely fantastic. I'm going to have you do a little roll. Okay. I'm going to have you do coordination and I'm going to say it's coordination and athletics. Uh, I'm going to say strength and athletics. That probably makes more sense. Okay. Would tough come into play here? Uh, Remind me what tough is. Maybe not. I don't think it would. Hang on. Tough reduces the amount of... No, because tough is like defensive. Okay. And then there's one more I want to look at. You know what? I so rarely have these kind of roles that I have low scores for. Uh, that I want to go ahead and do it. I mean, I think impulsive might maybe come into play here, but I'm going to go ahead and yeah, take this, it. Yeah, this feels very impulsive, so I think I'm actually going to give you a plus two for the impulsive nature of the act that you're about to do. Okay, um, I think that's all that I'll take. Otherwise, yeah. I, I like that I have this kind of lower score roll to start with. Because strength 
and athletics are definitely not my like it's not like when I have ingenuity and it's like go ahead and just tell me how I succeed on this roll before I roll it so um, yeah. let me go ahead and do this okay um, okay, that's a good roll. I rolled a five and a three, so so that's going to be a sixteen total. I'm happy with that. I'll take a sixteen. Yeah, that does it. You you smash that painting, and the glass is falling towards you like it's being held up uh, above a camera, and the glass is falling towards the camera like the gravitational pull of this glass is from the wall behind you and the glass is kind of flying towards you, but it doesn't hit you or cut you or scratch you in any way. And then suddenly there is there is this kind of white flash and you are still in this room and the glass of the painting is, is simultaneously on the floor behind you and yet also on the painting, uh, but the glass on the painting looks wrong. And you see leaning next to where the cane was, which is now in your hands, and leaning beside also the same cane, is your previous self, the previous doctor. And he is writing in, in a diary. Well, our history has come back to haunt us. And I mean that literally. Yesterday has overthrown today to change tomorrow. And sadly, there's nothing I can do to stop it. But there may still be a way to change it for the better. The Sisterhood thinks I'm not thinking well, nothing new there, but they think I might be on to something. There's just one problem. I know too much, and it's all in the wrong order. Wheel is right. I'm too big for my own britches. I'll just want to storm the castle and pull the wires out of the walls. The only way I will do this right is if I don't know I'm doing it. So I'll have to forget, for now. But this labyrinth will help me remember when the time is right, once I'm ready. And then this past doctor is no longer looking at the diary pages and is looking straight at you, making direct eye contact. Once I'm you. Oh, I should let you know, I don't, I don't, I don't remember. Oh, I've still, I've been, I've done the labyrinth, I've done the things and I do not remember what the plan was. Uh, there is a sound uh, of a door opening nearby and there is the sound of absolute chaos on the other side. And then this doctor closes the diary, tucks it into his jacket pocket and begins to run away from the wall towards you, through you, to something on the other side. And by the time you turn around to see where this, this past version of yourself has gone, he has vanished. And when you turn back to look at the painting... The other copy of the cane is gone, and the glass, the memory of the glass that you just broke, ripples and fades, and you are left standing uh, looking into this painting, into this Gallifrey, with your past self's cane in, in one hand, and... Your wits in your other, I guess. I don't know what else you're holding right now. Capri Sun? I don't, the diary that I've been carrying, probably. Yeah, I guess also the diary. Why not? Yeah. Um, I tuck the diary in one of my many pockets, and then I take the cane, and I kind of, like, hook it over my shoulder, and mm. then I step into the painting. You You step towards the painting, and it begins to change shape. The frame starts to morph, so it's no longer this 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 framed painting it begins to shift down into the shape of a door in front of you and the contents of the painting themselves begin to ripple and 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 coalesce and this is a door that you recognize very very well this is the interior door of your tardis okay uh i go up to it and this time i push and i go inside of it uh as you uh, go to push the door open an arm uh, lunges out and grabs you and pulls you out of this space by force. Um, go ahead and roll for me, please. Coordination and resolve. Let's do that. Interesting. All right. Uh, and I'm down one coordination because something happened um, previously. Hmm. Oh, okay. I rolled a six and a three. So let's see here. So 17. 17 is very, very good. 
So a couple of things happen. The first thing that happens is your uh, your Time Lord senses have returned. You now have uh, Vortex and, and feel the turn of the universe back. Boom. But the other thing that has happened is that your perception of time is still, it's, it's wrong still somehow. Previously, you were kind of very aware of time as this kind of present looming force. And now you, you're not moored in the same sense that you were when you were in the, uh, in the labyrinth. You are kind of unstuck a little bit. And it becomes very aware to you right now that you are uh, in, a, in a space that you recognize. You are in the capital on Gallifrey, uh, but it doesn't quite feel right. It doesn't, it's not quite um, here in the here and now. And you realize that you are not experiencing this, not even in the same way that you were experiencing the recordings in the other rooms. This is a memory. This is something that you have previously experienced very, very recently. And you are sitting in this kind of dark space in this, uh, in, in the capital on Gallifrey. And you, you are kind of watching this memory through your own eyes now as these three figures appear out of the darkness. It is Rassilon, Kaelin, and Maxil. And they step towards you hovering for a moment unmoving they they are they are stoic and re- reserved and the the key thing that you get from them in this particular moment is patience they are patient and i need you to do another role in okay. fact i need you to give me we i know awareness do you have any other thoughts michael for the other half of this role i would hmm i would maybe do technology would oh that makes absolute right? sense. Riley, give me awareness and technology if you would please. Okay. Um do I get anything for technically adept? Uh yeah, I would I would give you a buff for that. Okay. Um let's make yeah, let's give you a plus two for tech adept. Okay. Okay, that's gonna be an eighteen. That's a very, very good roll. Um Thank you. Might you. I'm something. trying really hard. You might get something a little extra for that. Um, you know exactly where you are. You are in a uh, in a chamber in the capital, and you actually, with that role, you now have a better understanding of when you are. This is this is shockingly recent for you in a way. This is um, this is what happened after you left Colony Forty Seven at the end of the last season, in the in the time where you were being interrogated. You are strapped to this kind of gurney, this kind of um, this bed. Uh, that's at uh, like a 40, 45 degree angle, and you are on the receiving end of a mind probe. This is not a pleasant time. They have been trying to get information out of you, um, and they've been trying to get information out of you for a very, a very long time. You are acutely aware of the fact that uh, that you have been here for a while. You hear talking. You hear snapshots and snippets of. Of, of dialogue and memory throughout the course of, of this time that you've spent here. Uh, which one of us is Kaylin right now, Michael, at this point in the That's narrative? What I, was, I was gonna ask, uh, just for my own memory and also for sure. the audience, because it's been about six months since we recorded these episodes. Mm-hmm. Kaylin is now dead, right? Kaylin, Kaylin died, died, died on that planet with the Master, right? Coiden died, died. Kaylin is Coiden's boss. Okay, yes. so Kalen is still alive, and at this point, Maxel is is Maxil no longer Col- Colin Baker. It's the Maxel after Colin Baker that's yes. played by. In my head, it's Patterson Joseph. Okay, sorry. Um, now continue. And the uncomfortable thing right now, Ben, is that you are all three of these. People. Oh, I'm all three of these people. <laughs> I don't remember any of their voices. It's going to be great. Yeah, so you hear you hear these kind of snippets of conversation uh, as you have this kind of memory of maybe lapsing in and out of. Uh, of, of consciousness, of awareness, they're probing your mind, and you you hear Kaylin say she'll bend the knee. All it takes is time, so we're going to give her months, years to think it over. And then you hear uh, the the second incarnation of Maxil say, "Meanwhile, we've managed to track down Roman's signal. I suppose the fool always did want to be a legend. Now he's moored in the vortex, like Rayla's Tardis." And then you hear the voice of Rassilon say, Excellent. The Keeper and I will have plenty of time to complete 
the Perfector. And you are very aware now of just how much time you have spent in this chamber. It has been months. You have been in this chamber being probed and tortured and tormented for months. And then there is a fourth figure, a fourth individual dressed in the golden robes of the Keeper of the Matrix, and you see their face. And it's Travis. I knew it! I hate you! I knew it! Ah! Ah! The second you said a fourth figure, I was like, no! We get to do this reveal twice, and it feels great every time. I gotta tell you. (laughs) And this other Travis looks wrong to you. He doesn't look... Uh, the kind of gentle ball of confident anxiety that you've come to know over the last almost two seasons. This is a Travis who is uh, is kind of contained. This is a Travis who knows exactly how he feels and has a lid on all of it. But this is a Travis with a a, a deep focus and a slight green glint in his eye. And you hear him say, All is going exactly to my Revised Matrix projections. Soon, we'll be able to perfect everything. And Rastalon says, Magnificent. All those years, all those centuries of waiting, and all it took to break my enemies, to bend time itself to my will, was one week. The four men walk off together, into the darkness, like a deeply warped version of Sex in the City. I know Michael said not to use it. I've put it in anyway. That's canon, baby. And this is the true horror of what you have just learned. You, You spent months and months and months being tortured, tormented, probed, prodded, your mind examined, your your physical limits tested. And all of that took place in the space. I mean, I spent like four billion years in a, in a castle with a shroud and I burned my head like a bunch and punched a rock wall and so yeah what's a few months you know jump change except this is all of those months were condensed into the space of seven days one week months of torture and torment condensed into one calendar week yeah chickity china the chinese chicken how jump stick and the dream stuck kicking yeah i got it yeah that's fine pri- you pretty truly much are the and- most 90s doctor <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure, sure, I'm sure Ball McGann might still be, but yeah. Please, Michael, could you please make a note that Riley will be starting with nine story points instead of eight at the start of the next serial? Um, and then you blink and you are not in the torture chamber anymore. You are not in the uh, the gallery, uh, the, the under gallery or the version of it in the labyrinth. You are standing again on that yellow sand with those orange walls with the, the vines and the leaves with that space stretching out ahead of you, except now it's all starting to crumble and erode. It's all starting to break down in front of you. This labyrinth is being unmade. But there's someone standing in front of you, someone waiting, exactly as she promised. Susan, the woman that the master thought was his granddaughter, is standing in front of you. Hello, Doctor. Shall we go? Oh. oh, you've proven so much more than the sum of yourselves. We're so proud of you, Doctor. A Time Lord, a president, an oncoming storm, a warrior, a widow, and at long last, a sister. There's just... There's one last thing I have to ask you. I just... For myself, I have to know. There are those, Doctor... The foolish few who think you left Gallifrey, who ran all those years ago to prepare yourself. All those civilizations rocked to their cores all across the universe, leading you back to the one world you feared breaking. So tell me, Doctor, after all those millennia running, are you ready to stand? You might say I've been standing for all my lives. And Susan uh, prepares to snap her fingers in the way you've seen her do to perform impossible things. But then she remembers just one last thing. 
Oh, doctor. One last thing. That companion you lost all those years ago. The man whose name you couldn't remember. His name was Gunther. By the way, the, the deeply warped version of Sex in the City already exists, and it's called Entourage, and it is actually terrible. Uh, so. Oh, it's, yeah, they're like an they're like the Entourage from a, yeah. Entourage. It's Entourage. Wow. Entourage, entourage is very much the, the, the douchey male Sex in the City. It is it's the perfect. darkest timeline. Yeah, whoa. <laughs> somebody, somebody on Facebook asked recently, what would you describe as a show that is, that is about, that is um, by douchebags for douchebags, and Entourage was the hands down. Like no one Once somebody yeah. said entourage, nobody could even think of another option. Someone was like, "Always sunny." I'm like, "No, always sunny." It's very self aware. Oh, like, yeah. Uh, sorry, back to recording.